everybody. This is part four of our series, uh, Rebel Jesus. And uh, I encourage you this evening, if you have your smart devices, feel free to take those out and um, head on to the Bible app there, the YouVersion app. And uh, we've got all the details there for you online. And uh, if you would like to take notes, feel free to do that. We also welcome tonight, of course, those who are streaming in our online uh, live service all the way around the world. It's great to have you here and uh, joining with us. But you might remember, three weeks or so ago, uh, probably four weeks now because of camp or a long weekend last weekend, Ben started this series entitled Rebel Jesus, gave a great introduction. I encourage you to go back if you weren't a part of that particular Sunday. Uh, Winnie then came up and shared with us about Jesus confronting superiority. And then uh, a couple of weeks ago, Joel came and shared with us Jesus confronting generational differences. And tonight, here's my topic, and it's this, that Jesus confronts Wealth. And we find this in Mark chapter 10, in fact, verses 17 to 22, a well known passage. And I want you to know right from word go that this was an actual encounter. This was not a parable. This was not a story that Jesus made up, as he often would, to get his point across. Now, typically, this, uh, is, is, this is called the story of the rich young ruler. And in fact, in the Gospels, it's recorded by uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And tonight, we're camping in the book of Mark. Now, Matthew tells us, first of all, that this was a young man. Luke tells us that he was a ruler. And you put them all together, we have the rich, young ruler. Yet what we actually find in this individual is he was actually one of the poorest people in the entire Bible. Yes, rich in possessions, but poor spiritually. He walks away from Jesus, as we've just witnessed. But not only that, he walks away from eternal life. And so the reason it's recorded in the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is because it deals with a critical issue, a critical issue for us to understand. And so let's go there just quickly. I'm going to really take this apart. I'm going to dissect each and every verse tonight. But before I do, he asks the question, what must I do? What must I do? This is the rich young ruler. What must I do to what? To inherit eternal life. This young ruler has everything, by the way. He is very successful. He is rich. Of course, he is young. Uh, he is a high achiever. He does not need anything. He does not even need to worry which garage he's going to park his camel in. Oh, I'm glad I got a bit of a cheer from that because uh, that's as funny as I get tonight. All right, so thank you for that. <laughs> he is set for life. However, this young ruler senses there's something lacking within his heart, within his life. There's something missing. And so he asks this question of Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is a fascinating question. I think just a bit by the side, I think it's a beautiful question. But it's a fascinating question because of this. It's a question that comes from a religious mindset. Where we're kind of saying to ourselves, what must I do to impress a holy God to gain salvation? 
Now, in a moment, Jesus is about to push back on that. But firstly, in asking that question, it reveals a couple of things about this rich young ruler. First of all, is Jesus just a good teacher? Is he saying that Jesus is just a good guy and a good example? That he put, maybe, did he put Jesus on the same level as all the other good teachers? The second thing I think it reveals about this guy is that his belief system is that you can actually earn eternal life. What's his question? What must I do to inherit eternal life? That you get to heaven by doing something. We believe here in the Christian church that you don't do anything to get to heaven. Why? Because it's in fact already done. Do versus Done. You receive eternal. Eternal life is given not because what we do, but because of what he's already done for us. Yes, his love compels us to therefore go and do great things. But this young ruler is unprepared to receive eternal Life. So the question was, the question was, what was more value to him? What was more valuable to him? Was it God and the life to come or his own will and in the present life? I think the bottom line here, the bottom line here is that he wanted eternal life. He wanted eternal life. He asked about that question, but not enough to give up his pride and his possessions. I think that's the bottom line here tonight. He never questioned what Jesus said. He never uh, argued with Jesus. We saw in that story, and if you read in Mark chapter 10, you'll see that he walked away sad. He walked away sad. And so whatever Jesus was offering this young ruler was in fact going to cost him. And it was a price too high even for, even for eternal life. You see, he wanted eternal life only as an add-on. Only as an add-on to what he already had possessed. He loved the world, but not heaven. He loved the material, but not the spiritual. And so the issue here, what we're dealing with tonight, is this. It's salvation. We are dealing with the topic of salvation, that this young man knew that there was eternal life. He knew he wanted it. And instead of an alternative to eternal death, and so he left the same way in which he came in a direct line towards eternal death. Now, as we think about this, let's, let's look into this story a little bit more because Jesus never gave him a prayer. Jesus uh, never asked him to make a decision right there and then. He never called for commitment to himself. And so we've got to ask the question, we've got to ask the question here. Did Jesus fail by not doing that? Did, um, did he miss an opportunity or are our ideas of evangelism different to that of Jesus? All right, here we go. Here we go. Strap in. 
because we're going to go a little bit deeper. Let's do one line at a time in Mark chapter 10. Here we go. Verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him. What did he do? He ran up to him, and the next thing he did was fall on his knees. He fell on his knees before him. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Now, we know from the book of um, Matthew and also from Luke's account that this was a young man and he was a ruler, probably, most probably of a synagogue, which mean, means he was a respected young man. Not only that, we also know that he was a very wealthy young man. So, satisfied in Life, maybe picture here with me just for a moment, Mark Zuckerberg. All right, you kind of get the idea. And so this guy, he was ahead of the game. He was young. He was wealthy. He owned a lot of property. He achieved spiritual respect uh, and status by being made the chief of a synagogue. And so he was a moral man. And what I mean by that is that he hadn't gained his wealth immorally. Yet it was within his heart a deep fear that he does not possess what he needs most. Once again, we're talking about the subject of salvation and eternal life here tonight. Jesus is saying, yes, you can have all that and you're still going to come to me and ask, but what about, what about eternal life? All right. Now, before you know, we go any further with this young man, I think there are some things that are, we, we ought to commend this young guy for. I think there are good signs about this young guy. And it goes like this, that he came running. He came running. Scripture teaches us that he came running to Jesus. Now, this is extraordinary for a couple of reasons. You see, Middle Eastern people of status, in fact, they don't run. And so he postures himself, the word goes on, and says in verse 17, that he fell on his knees before him. And so he postures himself in this humble manner. And so this is not the kind of man who runs and falls on his knees. This is commendable. Um, his attitude is commendable. His, his humility, um, how he addresses Jesus is quite commendable. Let's read. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so there's that sense that he comes eagerly. He comes with that humility. And he also comes urgently. He says, what must I do? What must I do? So he comes respectfully to Jesus. But he's feeling that pain of doubt, um, that, that sense that something is missing that hole in his heart and he's afraid that he does not have a relationship with God. I think another thing that's absolutely commendable here is that he comes to the right person. He comes to the right person. He comes to the one who in fact is eternal life. 1 John chapter 5 20 tells us exactly that, that Jesus is eternal life. And to ask him, to ask eternal life, how to receive eternal life. Now, this all sounds good, doesn't it? It sounds really good. So what's the problem, Steve? What's the problem with this story? 
the problem is summed up in one word, and it's this. It's the word good. It's the word good. You see, if there's any word that we don't understand, it's this word. I mean, you ask anyone out in the streets today here in Australia, are you a good person? <laughs> Most people, in fact, I'd probably say majority of people will say, absolutely I am, absolutely. But the problem here in this story is this one word, and the one word is good. Everyone say word good? Good? Very good. And so this young, this, this, <laughs> this young ruler uses it loosely, uses this word loosely. He thought that he and everybody else around him was in fact good. Now, if we understand that this word good is the problem, here's what we begin to understand. We begin to understand Jesus' answer. All right, here we go. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Remember, that's a religious question that I want to do something to impress God. And of course, many people have that approach to impress God. If there is a God, how can I do something that's going to make him, if he even exists, actually like me. If you've uh, 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 been uh, raised in a church or um, you've attended church most of your life, we, you, in fact, actually do this as well. If I never watch that bad movie, if I memorize certain scripture, God might like me. And maybe for other, others of, who, other of us who are gathered here tonight or participating online this evening, you define your life against pretty much everybody else and how immoral they are. And you kind of say to yourself, well, I'm glad I'm not like one of them. And so we're all asking the same question as this rich young ruler. What am I to do? to inherit eternal life. Back to the story, because before we look at this answer, before we look at the answer, I want to ask you, how would you answer that? What must I do? Okay, you, you, with this, you can being confronted by this, this young ruler. What are you to do? What am I to do to inherit eternal life? I wonder, I wonder what your answer would be. And most of us, I'm sure, would, would simply just share the gospel. The gospel is to believe in Jesus, to believe in Jesus. But Jesus did not say that. Jesus, in fact, went somewhere else and said something far different. He, he needed confronting with something. Yes, faith is essential, absolutely. But he was confronted with something else, and that is this. Repentance. Repentance. What's repentance? Let me explain what repentance is. It says it up there on the screen. A repentance is a personal, absolute, and ultimate, unconditional surrender to God as sovereign. That word sovereign, he reigns. Sovereign, he reigns over everything. 
in spite of my understanding. He reigns. It's when you make a complete change of direction toward God, that not a 360, but a 180. You go in that other direction that you were going. And so Jesus, there's no, stay with me here for a moment, because there's no comment from Jesus about believing. Because the issue here in this story between this rich young ruler and Jesus is sin. It's law and it's repentance first. And Jesus makes it very clear in this one sentence. And he goes on and he says, why do you call me good? Why do you call me good? What Jesus is saying here is, why are you throwing that word around? What is it that you've recognized in me to call me good? Now, in asking him that question, hang in there. He's giving him an opportunity to confess that he is God. Now, of course, the proper response as we step back from this, uh, this ruler, this young guy, his proper response would have, could have been something like this. That I'm in fact calling you good, Jesus, because I know there's only one that is really good. And that's why I'm calling you good teacher. Here's why. Because you're different and you are unique and you must be good God in human flesh. And so right here, it's like that bam kind of moment. Jesus redefines that word in this next statement. He says, no one is good. No one is good except God alone. God alone. What's Jesus doing here? He's taking the focus off this young man and moving it onto God. Jesus is kind of saying that I know you are asking about you because your life orbits around you, but I actually want you to, I wanted to start talking about God. No one is good. No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus is saying one of two things here. He's saying that I'm no good, or he's saying that I am God. Now, Jesus certainly isn't denying that he's God here. He's, in fact, affirming that he is God. Let's read. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What he's doing is challenging this young man's sense of goodness. And of course, as a Jewish religious leader in which he was, he should have known the Psalms. He should have clearly known Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. That no one, no, not one, no one, no, not one is righteous. No, not one. Psalm chapter 14, verse 4. He should have known the Psalms. You see, here's the deal. Here's the deal. True goodness, true goodness is the nature of God revealed in the law. True goodness of the nature is the nature of God revealed in the law. You see, what I mean by that is when you start measuring yourself against the law of God, you come, you do not come out as good as God. And so what's the purpose of that? What's the purpose of that then? Well, Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law is what drives you to Christ and He alone is the one who saves that's what Galatians 3 teaches us. So the purpose of the law is to show just how perfectly good God is. And this young man totally missed that. You see, he had 
uh, a superficial view, if I could say, a superficial view of the law. He was absolutely sure that he was good, that he met the law's demands, and he was on his way to heaven. And so the story continues, and it goes a little bit like this. In fact, here's what we're going to do. Let's find out if this man is actually good. Jesus, remember, no one is good. No one is good except who? Except God alone. Verse 19, you know the commandments. This is Jesus. You know the commandments. Of course he does. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now, what's Jesus is doing here? Hang in here, hang in here. Jesus is mentioning to him in this story six of the ten commandments. Very good. Very good. Now, interestingly, interesting, what Jesus has pointed out here is the second half of the commandments. What's the second half of the commandments deal with? Our human relationships, one with each other. He doesn't go to the first half, well, the first four, the last six, in fact, deal with relationships with each other. He actually, and you might remember, it's divided up into two. And what Jesus is saying here, let's see how you're in fact going with human relationships first. All right? And so let's see. Let's see. Um, teacher, he declared, um, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Now, that's impressive. Would you be able to say that? That is impressive. What he's saying here is that I am good. I am perfect. I'm perfect. That's what he's saying. He kind of stands up to that. I'm good. I don't hurt anyone. I certainly don't go around killing anyone. I don't steal. I don't lie. But here's the deal. He had a... He had a um, a righteousness based on negatives. This young man had a righteousness based on negatives. What do I mean by that? It's this. I'm saved because I don't do bad stuff. I'm saved because I'm, I'm not in, I, I, I haven't been in jail for anything. He had a righteousness based on negatives. Maybe I'd explain it like this. Ever been to the dentist? You ever been to the dentist of late? We all love going to the dentist, don't we? <laughs> um, you know that you know that kind of uh, stick thing. I don't know what I call it, but that it has a little sharp curve point. It's like a little you know sharp curve pointed object thing. You know, you know, it kind of goes digging, doesn't it? You know, you understand what I'm trying to say. And he starts searching for little spots in and around your mouth. And um, he kind of says, does that hurt? Can you feel that? Is it feeling a little bit tender? You get the idea, right? You don't know that? Yeah, good. See, what Jesus, what Jesus is doing here with the law is he's starting to hit a tender spot in this young man's life. When he says, I have kept the law since I was young. What Jesus is trying to do here, he's trying to hold up a mirror to this young man and say, look how much you need grace. Look how much you need the gospel. You break the laws every day, but you don't know it. And so let me hold the law up to you and to see just how good you are. This revealed something here, and it's this. That this revealed that he knows the surface of the law, but not the depth. 
of the law. And that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which we're studying every morning in our 10 o'clock services, Jesus says that you've heard it said, but I say to you, if you don't murder, fine. But I'm telling you, if you hate somebody, you're in fact, you're a murderer in your heart. You've been taught that if you don't commit adultery, you're okay. But I'm telling you, if you lust after a woman in your heart, in fact, you've committed adultery. Now, if this young ruler understood the law, the depth of the law, not just the surface, he would know that he had hatred, that he had lustful thoughts, that he had desires to covet and to lie. All these, he said, all these I have kept since I was a boy. By the way, no sinner can live in such a pure way. And so here's what Jesus does. Here's what he does. He goes after the idol, the thing that's killing this young man spiritually. So let's admit it tonight. This young man is a lawbreaker. He's worthy of death. And sadly, sadly, but honestly, the truth is that it's true for each of us. And so not only is is he a violator of the second half of the law, he's also a violator of the first half of the law. No other gods before me. This is the first part of the, the commandments. No idols. Don't take my name in vain and observe the Sabbath. Jesus looked at him. This is getting towards the end of the story now. Jesus looked at him and what? Loved him. Think about that. That's the God we serve. Jesus looked at him. I wonder, I wonder what that look must have been like. Maybe a tear running down the cheeks of his Savior. Like the tears, like the tears shed over Jerusalem. Empathetic and compassionate. Why? Because this man was a blasphemer. And he didn't know it. This man was a violator. But he didn't know it. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing. One thing. Everyone say one thing. One thing Jesus said to him. One thing you lack, he said. He said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Let's not, just kind of press pause there just for a moment to explain this. Because it's important we don't miss this. It's important that we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying here. Many of us, many of us have for many, many years. That he's not giving people a call to poverty. I will also go a step further and say he's not in fact giving people a call to philanthropy. If you don't understand what that means, feel free to Google later on. Because you can't, in fact, earn your way to heaven by lowering your bank account. It's only when you get rid of that idol and you embrace the true God. And so let's, let's summarize. Let's summarize. Is that okay? And I'm done. Because when I had a chance to think about this, why we take communion in a moment, and we think of the one who stands in the gap between us and a holy God 
between us and eternal death, that he stands in the gap. Let's summarize what we've just heard here tonight. And it's this, earthly wealth and temporal satisfaction was this young man's God. Jesus preached the law to him. He never got to the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the good news. What's the good news? It's the good news of Jesus, which we're going to celebrate just in a moment. But he's using the law as a probe, you know, the dentist as a probe to expose his heart because he knows he has not kept the law. And I think the key here is when Jesus said, then come and follow me. Trust me. Believe in me. At this, the young man's face fell. At this, the man's face fell. He went away, what? He went away sad because he had great wealth. There's nothing wrong with being rich, by the way. I'm not saying that. Scripture's not saying that. Just don't die rich. Because he had great wealth. So he walks away with no change just keeps going on in life. He walks away sad and he walks away not convicted. And the idol, the idol in his life was what? Was property and possessions. He wanted eternal life, but he wanted it as an addition, not as a complete substitution for everything else in life. He knew that Jesus had torn open his heart and exposed him for who he really was. And the idea, the idea behind Jesus was this, was to get him to realize that he was owned by another God. He didn't love God with all of his heart, soul, and mind. One thing, one thing, Jesus asked, one thing to get rid of that idol. The idol in this man's life was, was money, was possessions, this one thing. How do you tell a highly respected, revered, honored, religious man who sees his prosperity as good, that good is not relative, and there is only one who is good, it is God, and he is is not. How do you tell someone like that? I don't know about you, but I'd want to say that maybe understand that the goodness and the righteousness that you can't achieve will be given to you as a gift through the sacrifice of Christ that he was made sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God, that you could come into eternal life. But you can't come into eternal life unless, unless you are as good as God. And the only way, the only way that you can be as good as God is to have the goodness of God credited to you through the gospel. And that's the good news, that Christ pays for our sin and he gives you and me his perfect goodness. That's the biblical definition of goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so, to you, 
We've heard about this young man, this ruler, had everything. We've heard about his idol. Just before we share communion together, let's do a heart check. Let's go to him. Forget the person on your left and the right. Let's go to him now in a holy moment as we share with him one-on-one together with the King of kings and Lord of lords. And maybe you're here for the first time and you're you're searching, you're developing that spiritual walk and that life, whatever that means for you. Maybe for you, this could be a, a perfect opportunity for you to lay it down now before him and say, King Jesus, come. I've tried everything. Come and fill that hole in my heart that I know can only be filled by you. Come. So for some of us tonight, we are the rich young ruler, enslaved. And my question to you is, what will you do right now in this moment? Would you be willing to lay that idol down? If it, if it is an idol, what is it? Just in your heart of hearts before him, he's intimately acquainted with all of your ways. He can hear your heart. He understands. Father, tonight, your word is rich. We are rich because of the blessing of your word. The truth of scripture helps define everything that we are and what we do and also what we believe. Do a work, I pray, in our hearts. But no one walk away like the rich young ruler tonight and cling to our own idols. We don't deserve the promises. We don't deserve salvation. We certainly don't deserve forgiveness. But tonight, we rejoice in it. We rejoice in it. We're thankful for it and helps us live gratefully and urgently. Help us, I pray, for each of us. Get our spiritual life in order and giving up that idol, whatever it might be, to become spiritually rich. Jesus, I pray on behalf of everyone here, you would take that idol that's clearly between you and us. And thank you, Heavenly Father, as we come now, as we celebrate this meal together, this this communion together, as we get ready to eat the bread together and, and share of the cup, as we remember that your body was broken for us and your body, um, you bled for us. Um, it's for the sins of the world, including ours, right here, right now. We're so grateful. We're so thankful. And so if you, if you got prepared, let's, let's eat together. Is that okay? There's something special when we eat together. And I know there's noises involved and that's okay. Just rip it open. But let's make this moment together as we remember the one who stands in the gap, the one who, who has made it all possible for you and I to breathe our next breath as we share in remembering his body as we take the bread biscuit together. And the juice that represents the blood of Jesus. It's, uh, it's not a big meal, but it's something so profound as he's met with his disciples that day in the upper room and before his death. And he took a cup from the table and uh, that he said, this cup represents 
my blood that we poured out for your sins, for the sins of the world. We take this in remembering Jesus' blood. Let's drink together.